I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about what is happening in Sudan, we have with us CSIS senior associate Cameron Hudson, former director of the National Security Council for Africa, former CIA analyst. Cameron, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So I want to ask you just at the outset, a lot of us haven't thought much about Sudan since the ouster of Bashir back in 2019. Can you provide a little bit of context as what exactly is going on there now? Sure. Well, if you're picking up from uh, where we left off in 2019, there was a civilian government that replaced President Bashir. That government lasted for about uh, two years until October of 2021, when the two generals who are fighting out now in Sudan overthrew this civilian prime minister who was in office with U.S. backing and support. Since that time, Washington has been leading a mediation effort to try to get these two army generals to turn power back over to civilians. And we're making good progress on that. They had worked through a lot of the kind of complicated issues related to justice and accountability and economic reform that were required for civilians to take over control. In the last month or so, however, they hit some pretty significant roadblocks around questions of security sector reform, how the military would be reformed uh, under civilian rule, how the rapid support forces would be folded into the Sudan armed forces and creating one national army. And it's essentially the, the, the fallout from that security sector reform conversation that has produced the violence that we see in, in Sudan today. So tell me a little bit about these two generals. Who are they and why are they at each other's throats at the moment? Well, there's obviously a, a high degree of personal animosity between them, but I think the, the conflict really stems from some institutional differences between the armed forces and the rapid support forces. The SAF, as it's referred to, the Sudan Armed Forces, is really the kind of traditional national army that you might think of. They have a military command college. They've been trained by the Egyptian military. And they see themselves as sort of the constitutional officers of the state. The military has long held power under a variety of military dictatorships in the country. So they see themselves as the power holders of the country. They are at their most senior ranks, mostly kind of from Arab elite tribes in the country. So there's a certain chauvinism that they have looking down upon other parts of the country, minority tribes. Juxtapose that to the rapid support forces, which essentially... Uh, formed out of the Arab militias that the Bashir regime used in the Darfur conflict to kind of carry out its scorched earth policies. We called them the Janjaweed here. So the the guy who runs that, uh, General Hameti, he emerged up through the ranks of the Janjaweed militia in the early 2000s. He took over the Janjaweed on the tail end of that conflict at a time when President Bashir saw real value in maintaining a counterweight force to the army. This was his effort to sort of coup-proof his regime. So he never wanted the army to become too powerful or so powerful that it could overthrow him. And so the RSF emerged as a kind of counterweight to the army in the in the years after the Darfur genocide. But Hemeti, this general, is also very entrepreneurial. 
and has used his command of the RSF to turn it into both a mercenary army, selling his services to the Saudis, the Emiratis in places like Yemen and Libya, and becoming quite wealthy as a result of that, but also using his control largely of the Darfur area to take control over gold mining operations and providing security for other businesses. So he has built himself a substantial business empire in the country, which he has used to uh, buy heavy weapons and recruit an army of upwards of 100,000 people. So it's made him a real operational rival to the army. But it's ultimately this kind of upstart uh, militia leader from the hinterlands of the country, opposed to this sort of urban elite Arab leader of the military and their institutions, which are at loggerheads right now. There's been a fourth attempt at a 72-hour ceasefire, which was announced yesterday, but seems to be very shaky at best today. What is going on and, and what will – what can stop this? Well, what's going on I think is perhaps most important right now, and that answers the question of what will stop it. Because what's going on is a real battle to the death for these guys. They see – the other as an existential threat to their own political and economic survival in the country. And so that creates very little opportunity for a negotiated settlement. I think that the prospect of the United States or even powerful governments like the Saudis and the Emiratis essentially imposing a ceasefire on these parties right now is kind of wishful thinking. We have seen, as you suggest, that when they're on the phone, either of these leaders with Secretary Blinken or UN Secretary General Guterres, they're more than willing to uh, agree to a ceasefire. But the practicalities of that are rarely met. There, you know, there's been very little effort to impose a ceasefire on the ground by either of these guys. I think because they both see themselves as having a tactical advantage right now, and they're not, they're just not willing to 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 let up. But we've also seen this as a history with both of these individuals where they're willing to tell the international community one thing, that they're, that they're prepared to hand over power to civilians, that they're prepared for elections or to see civilian rule, but then on the ground and in a practical way, there's no real evidence to suggest that what they're telling us is in fact what they're prepared to do. And I think we're, we're seeing that play out over and over again around this ceasefire question. So really hard to stop it, considering no one wants to stop what are the major challenges that Sudanese civilians are facing now? People are fleeing Khartoum and its adjacent city. What are they, what kind of hardships are they facing? Well, it's been incredibly difficult for the Sudanese in the cities. And I want to remind people that, you know, Sudan has this long history of violence, but that violence has always taken place in places like Darfur or in South Sudan, very rural areas where people have sadly grown accustomed to that violence and also had built-in coping mechanisms for, for helping to manage and respond to that violence. So urban dwellers like we're seeing in Khartoum don't have those same resiliencies kind of built into their daily lives. And so the first 10 days of fighting saw people running out of food, running out of water, running out of medicine. We've seen, I think, now virtually all of the hospitals in Khartoum closed, either because of damage or because the, the hospital staff simply can't get there. So in the last, I would say, 72 hours or so, essentially since the United States led the international community in evacuating its diplomats, 
we have seen Sudanese civilians essentially following suit, trying to get out of uh, Khartoum by any way they can. I'm hearing reports, and we're all seeing reports of you know, individual neighborhoods and apartment blocks, for example, renting buses, you know, groups of people renting, chartering buses uh, to drive them out of the city to mostly to Port Sudan, uh, the, the main port on the Red Sea coast, others going a more perilous route uh, north towards Egypt. But these are 16 to 20 hour drives across open desert with people who are already feeling the effects of 10 days of conflict, people who are weak, tired, in a very uh, tenuous place from a health perspective, making these perilous trips across the desert through a conflict zone and then ultimately reaching perhaps safe haven at a border or at a, at a port, but requiring significant humanitarian assistance once they get there. And these are people that live in residential neighborhoods, in houses, they work in offices, they're professionals. So it must be, as you said, they don't have the resilience of someone who's been living in Darfur. The toll must be, you know, triple on them, if not more. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you look at the scenes from, from, from Khartoum right now, and it reminds you of some of, the, from some of the worst violence that we remember seeing in Syria over the past few years, right, where you have urban dwellers and urban conflict destroying apartment blocks and, and whole city blocks, right? And so that's the kind of destruction that we're seeing in Khartoum right now. And again, it's not something that Khartoumites are, are used to or have any experience with in particular. And so the toll on them has been has been devastating. We have seen the tactics used by both the RSF and the SAF really not take into any account that they are fighting in a city of, of upwards of 10 million people. So we're seeing aerial bombardment. We're seeing the use of heavy artillery. We are seeing sometimes the inadvertent, but nonetheless, the destruction of civilian infrastructure. So not only hospitals, but water pumping stations, uh, power generation plants. We have seen uh, cell phone towers and other uh, internet servers destroyed in the violence. So as the violence has encroached and, and spread across the city, we've also seen services begin to, to, to shut down all across the city. So it's really no longer a habitable place for, for most civilians to be. We are right now only seeing, you know, perhaps in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people fleeing the city. But in a city of 10 million people, you can expect that many, many more are going to continue to exit the city when they can't get access to power, when they can't get access to water, and certainly when they have no access to health care. So I'm very fearful that we're going to see a mass exodus on a scale that we really haven't seen in very many other places. And you just said a city of 10 million people. This is a mega city. Absolutely. One of the things that I think, you know, is just starting to seep out in people's reporting that I wanted to ask you about is recently the World Health Organization expressed concern that one of the parties has seized control of the Central Public Health Laboratory in Khartoum. And, you know, they're saying it's extremely dangerous because they have polio isolates in the lab. They have measles isolates in the lab. They have cholera isolates in the lab. And then, you know, maybe there's things in there that we don't know what they have. So Africa's always concerned about disease. This has got to be a public health catastrophe as well. Well, it very soon could be. That's a brand new report that we're just seeing. And, and obviously it, it shows that even these these armies right now are essentially marauding through the city, right? So we're, we're getting a lot of reports, especially of the RSF, 
who are looting, who are you know stealing people's possessions and valuables. They're ransacking government offices and facilities like this one. And I think for for much of it, they don't even know what they're doing, right? They 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 break into these places. They're looking for valuables. They themselves are actually looking for food and water. The RSF deployed into this fight without any having any kind of uh, reliable supply lines to to feed or sustain their own troops. And so, uh, in the early days of this conflict, I was I was hearing literally about RSF troops breaking into people's homes so that they could charge their cell phones, so that they could eat and drink and sleep, and they were essentially housing in, in people's homes. These are, in fact, the same tactics that the Janjaweed used in Darfur, breaking into people's homes, stealing their livestock, stealing their water supplies. They're essentially doing that in, in, in urban areas right now with very little regard for civilians or civilian infrastructure or the responsibilities that come with conducting warfare in a city like this. So let's put the the death toll and the injury toll into context. Recent reports have said at least 459 people, including civilians and military personnel, have been killed and over 4,000 wounded since the fighting began just days ago. What does that tell you about future prospects for casualties in this? Well, first I have to say that I think that those are gross underestimates of the real uh, number of casualties and fatalities, principally because the hospitals aren't open, right? So people can't even make it to the hospitals in Sudan to to have their you know their casualties counted right now. So I think that those are 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 pretty significant underestimates. But secondly, to your point, I think the death toll is is likely really to accelerate again. People have largely been hunkered down in their homes. A message from our government, uh, from other governments, has been to shelter in place. But sheltering in place only lasts if you have food and water and electricity and, and life-saving supplies to sustain yourself. If you don't have that, then at some point you have to venture out. You have to leave your home to stay alive. And when, when that happens there is a real risk that more and more people are going to be caught in this crossfire, that as you have this very unorganized and even chaotic scene unfolding across the city right now and sort of indiscriminate violence, that you're going to have more and more people running face-to-face with this violence when they when they have to leave their homes. And so I think there's a real risk of, of them being caught in this crossfire. Can the international community at this point start doing food and water and medicine drops in neighborhoods so people can maybe access it a little bit easier? I think the focus right now has been on trying to establish some humanitarian corridors to get people out of the city in a more organized fashion. So we're seeing convoys. The UN on Monday of this week, the 24th of April, led a very sizable international convoy out of the city towards Port Sudan. I know that the United States has been providing overhead intelligence through drones to keep those convoys safe and to at least alert them to the possibility of upcoming violence or roadblocks or what have you. So that has largely been the effort right now to get people out of the violence, away from the violence, and then to pre-position aid where we think they're going. So either in Port Sudan or by the Egyptian border. But I think the, the risk is delivering aid to places and having people congregate around aid stations where that puts them at greater risk of violence, right? And so I don't think we want to do anything that is going to contribute to people's exposure. And so 
you can imagine these scenes that we all remember from Sarajevo or from, from other kind of famous incidents of urban warfare where aid points were in fact places that either side could choose to uh, to target civilians. Civilians are already a target in this. We don't want to do anything that's going to contribute to that to that targeting. So it's really right now I think about getting people to safety, assisting them in getting to safety, and then making sure that the assistance is there once they once they reach the, the safe place. Cameron, I want to ask you about the reports about Russia's involvement. There have been reports about the Wagner Group being involved, that there's a nefarious Russian angle to this. What do you make of those reports? Well, it's certainly true that the Wagner Group has been in Sudan for a number of years. They were invited in back in 2017, by then-President Bashir, essentially to provide military advice to, to the government. They, we know that they have remained, but I think it's worth noting that they have a very small footprint, and that footprint is not of fighters. When we think of the Wagner Group now, we kind of have this image of, of them fighting, like we see in Mali or in the Central African Republic, where they have over a thousand fighters reportedly in these places. I think we're we're in the tens of people that Wagner has in the country. And yes, they are absolutely advising, I think, the rapid support forces. There have been some some media reports that they may be trying to funnel uh, new weapons, shoulder-fired rockets and, and these kinds of weapons into the fight to assist the RSF. And I think they're certainly... Uh, assisting on the propaganda front. We have seen the RSF really pushing out a steady stream of propaganda, essentially trying to burnish their own reputation in this fight. So on those fronts, I think Wagner is there and is likely playing a kind of advisory role. But I would caution people to think that their presence there is either what has uh, sparked the U.S. engagement. It's not. Their role is relatively modest, I think, still at this point. Could it grow? Yes. Could they be a difference maker? Potentially. So it's something we obviously have to stay on top of and and stay concerned with. But there are many other states in the region that are also taking a kind of either operational role or or kind of active concern about what happens in Sudan. And I think those are, are other countries that we need to be very much focused on right now. Cameron, finally, what is the most important thing that the Biden administration can do right now to help with this conflict? Well, I think that the Biden administration has their hands tied a bit, given the number of American citizens who are trapped in the country. And there's already been, I think, some criticism that more hasn't been done to get those Americans out. Obviously, you know, there's a, a certain hangover here in Washington from from the Kabul departure, but also from the Benghazi incident uh, more than 10 years ago now, right? So uh, I think the safety and security of Americans and American diplomats has been paramount and has been driving the Biden team's early involvement in this. I think now that we have our diplomats out and now that we are on the path towards facilitating the exit of so many Americans, I think the focus now needs to be on uh, working with a diplomatic coalition to keep outside powers out. We know that Egypt and Libya and Chad and South Sudan and 
uh, Central African Republic, all of these neighboring states have an interest in the outcome. They all have their own militias and rebel groups who are willing and ready to join the fight in Sudan. So I think we, we should be very worried about this conflict becoming regionalized and seeing a host of countries uh, get involved in this fight. That is what's going to uh, deepen and expand this fight and prolong this fight. And so while I don't think that we can put much faith at all in the words of either of the leaders when they tell us that they're prepared for a ceasefire, what we can do is try to avoid adding any oxygen to this spreading wildfire in the country. And I think the best way we can do that is through our diplomacy, keeping people out of this fight, keeping them on the sidelines, denying the added troops and the added weaponry that's going to sustain this fight, and then putting both in the situation where they're forced to negotiate. I think that's the best we can do right now. Cameron Hudson, thank you very much for being with us today and for your great insights. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 